Liz Kessler is a well-loved writer for children and teenagers. She's particularly well-known for her series about mermaids and fairies. She's also written books for newly independent readers, Poppy the Pirate Dog, inspired by her own dog. Liz has been shortlisted for the Blue Peter Book of the Year Award for her standalone novel, A Year Without Autumn. Her latest novel, When the World is Ours, is partly inspired by family history. It tells the story of three young friends growing up in Vienna under the threat of Nazi occupation. Their innocent friendship is cruelly and tragically ended as their destinies take them across Europe to Germany, England, Czechoslovakia and Poland. It gives me great pleasure today to welcome Liz into the Reading Corner. So Liz, uh, before we start to delve into the story, um, can you tell us a little bit uh, about the background? I know that this is partly your father's story, so I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how that was revealed to you. I feel like I've got this sense of it always having been there. I can't pinpoint a time when I was told the story and I was amazed and like, oh, wow, that's incredible. In fact, it was it was about 10 years ago when I was writing a book that involved a moment that changed everything. And I was thinking about how that idea had always fascinated me. I've always loved films like Sliding Doors and It's a Wonderful Life. And, you know, these ones where you're like, but what if that moment hadn't happened? And it hit me that the reason that this fascinates me so much is because it's it's part of my history. My dad grew up in Vienna and he was four years old um, in 1934. And his father took him on a Danube steamer. And they were on this boat and my dad was kneeling on a seat looking out of the window and a couple came and sat uh, the woman was sitting on the chair beside my dad's and my grandfather said to him be careful of the woman's dress and the woman kind of said it's, it's fine turned out she was English she and her husband were English and they were called Mr and Mrs Jones they got into conversation with my grandfather and uh, they were dentists and they were in Vienna on a conference for a conference and they were on this organised day tour. And in fact, they got into such animated discussion that they missed the stop where the rest of the tour had got off. So my grandfather, you know, he asked them where they were staying and he said, I know your hotel and I'll, I'll take you back there. But first, come back with me, meet my wife, have some of her zakatorte and maybe tomorrow um, we'll show you Vienna. And so they did that. And then sometime later, the Joneses sent a letter uh, which my dad still has, um, that said, thank you uh, for the lovely day, we've not forgotten it. And it was on their dentist's headed paper. Anyway, that was that. And then in 1938, um, when the Anschluss happened and uh, Austria was annexed to Germany and things became increasingly scary and bad for Jewish people, uh, my family... Uh, had to get away. And it was increasingly hard for, for Jewish families to to get out of the country at all. And in order to do it, there was all sorts of admin they had to do. And the one thing that they needed that they didn't have was an affidavit from someone in the country they wanted to go to, to say that they would take care of them, take full financial responsibility for them. And then my grandfather came across the letter from the Joneses. And it was the only thing, they were the only people... They had, you know, they'd met them for a day. They were like, why would they help us? But they were the only, it was the only chance they had. So he wrote to them and they wrote back and they said, yes, we'll do it. We'll do everything. And they did. They helped them get a visa. 
They brought them to um, where they lived in a house just outside Chester. They lived with them for six months and helped them get on their feet. They helped my dad get enrolled in the local school uh, and they undoubtedly saved saved my family's lives. So Absolutely amazing. So this story had been there. What made now the right time to write it? The weird thing is, like my my dad's often said to me, you know, People always say to me, why don't you write a book about your story? And I tell them, I'm not the writer, but you are, so why don't you? And I've always said to him, the thing that's fascinated me isn't, let me tell you my dad's amazing story, which is amazing, but that's never been the thing I wanted to tell. The thing I've always wanted to write is, what if that moment had never happened? That's the stuff, that's what I want to know about. So I think in some ways, um, I do believe that stories have their own gestation period and it takes as long as it takes. But also, I'd got to a point career-wise where I sort of thought, I just feel the need to take a little step out of publishing and come back to where I started, which is just delve into myself and write about whatever's there without worrying about who might want it, who might read it, anything like that. And the other thing that's difficult is when you write about mermaids and fairies and time travel and pirate dogs, it's quite hard then to move on to a subject like the Holocaust. Um, So it felt like it needed a big break. Um, So I did that and this story came up. And the other reason for why now is that, you know, my dad turned 90 last year and um, I wanted him to be around. I wanted him to, to, to see this book happen and to be part of it. Let's tell our listeners a little bit about the story because it is it isn't your dad's story. It is, as you put it, about the shadows in the background. It's the story of three friends, Leo, Elsa, and Max. Can you just uh, set it up for us a little bit? So Leo, Elsa and Max um started in 1936. They're good friends, and at the start of the story, they're they reach around nine years old. And um, the story moves from 1936 on to 1945 in, in scenes that are told through the three viewpoints. And uh, Leo's story is the one which echoes my dad's. It isn't my dad's story, but it has the same sense of the remarkable moment that led to a letter that led to an escape. So that most closely resembles my father's. And then the character of Elsa is a Jewish girl who doesn't have that lucky moment. And so we follow what happens to her. And tragically, her life is the answer to the question of what might have happened if if they hadn't had that moment. And then I realised that sort of from the point of view of a, a, like, narratively, I suppose, or plot-wise, or just, it didn't feel whole just to have two sides. It felt like there was something missing. And in fact, I realised then that there was a third question, which is, what if these same events had happened, but he hadn't been Jewish? What if you had a child who has no control over their events, who doesn't understand it, who isn't responsible at that time for any of it, but they get swept up by the events too? And it felt like in equal parts scary and exciting because it felt quite a dangerous journey for me to tread. And anyway, that's where Max comes from. So he is the son of uh, quite an ardent Nazi and he will go in a very different direction. Leo's story is written in the first person. Elsa's story is written in the first person. Max, you chose a third person voice. What was the thinking behind all of that? So, yes, um, Leo's narrative is the first person, but it's told in the past tense. And Elsa's is first person in the present tense. 
And as you say, Max is in the third person. So as an author, you're always looking for ways to distinguish if you've got different narrative points of view to, to distinguish them. Um, and I quite quickly thought I, I wanted them to be told in a different person and or a different tense or something. So I knew I wanted to do that. Elsa's story felt I needed to tell it in the present. <laughs> Partly I wanted to be close to Elsa. Um, I don't think I've ever cared so much for a character. I felt so much love or compassion. Um, and once people have read the book, they'd understand me saying that. But um, so her present tense, it's like her story is in the present in a way it has to be. Um, Leo's is in some ways like he's looking back on it, but it's still very personal. And then when it came to Max, it was partly for the book that I wanted a different point of view for Max. It was partly for me personally and partly because I wanted to keep a tiny bit of distance um, in terms of the storyline. I just, I think the third person just felt like that tiny bit of distance from this story. I didn't want myself to be wrapped up in the heart of a Nazi trajectory. And I didn't really want to drag my readers right into the heart of a, of a Nazi mind. So um it felt important in lots of ways just to have that distance. And it feels like something that I'd love to imagine classes of, of, of young people discussing this. I've had various writers on the podcast in the past who've written historical fiction. Lucy Worsley, who, um, when I talked about historical fiction and truth, said, oh, fiction gives you the um, legitimacy to write about whatever might have been. You can, you can do what you like um, with it. And then, but she's obviously talking about Tudor periods and that kind of history. And then recently I had Tom Palmer talking about his book After the War and how important it was to stick to the facts. Because if you don't stick to the facts, you allow in Holocaust deniers, for instance. So you have to be really rigorous about that. What are your thoughts? I'm probably further beyond Tom Palmer. Right. Okay. Yeah. So I'm. It's it's a story. It's a fiction. The characters are made up, but the everything about this book is as true to history as you could get. I, for me, one of the most important things about writing this book was to be respectful to the facts. I'm not dressing it up as some kind of pretend background so that I can write a story that I want to write. I took as many steps as I think it's possible to take uh, to ensure that this book didn't do anything um, historically inaccurate. I had various Holocaust experts read it and adjusted it several times, even down to tiny moments about the placing of things at Auschwitz and getting the exact dates right. So as you can probably tell by the way I'm speaking, the truth of the historical background is my number one priority with this book. And that's why it's quite hard hitting, because I couldn't shy away from the truth. We're going to hear a reading in a moment, but just before we get there, one other important fact here, I think, is about how images of the Holocaust can sometimes be dehumanizing and we don't necessarily see individuals in that imagery that's what a fiction a novel like this can do it can take you to the heart of individual 
experience in a way that reels of film, photographs perhaps don't do. Yes, and I think that that's an important thing about any kind of creative work, um, whether it's fiction or, or, or art or photography even. You know, I'm quite a keen photographer and I quite like macro photography where you might be like just taking photograph of the, you know, the, the detail of, I don't know, a, a snow drop or something or a leaf or an ant or something. And I think that when you, the closer you zoom in on a very particular story, the more you're going to engage the reader or the viewer and bring them in to empathise and identify with that story. And I think the very particular focus of one individual or two or three individual stories is a way into the bigger stories. It would be lovely to hear a, a bit now. Um, we're hearing part of Leo's story. And this comes probably about a quarter of the way through. We've, we've, the characters have been established there's strong bond of friendship, but things are about to change dramatically. And you're going to read us a little bit um, about yeah. that. I just say that, as we've mentioned, the story is told through different points of view. And this excerpt um, alternates between Max and Leo. So when I read the, the, the section, I'll say the name at the, at the start. Max. The headmaster had called a special assembly. Mr. Schmidt pulled a piece of paper from his pocket and in his big booming headmaster's voice, he went straight to the point. If you hear your name, please stand. Heinz Bergman, a young kid a few rows behind Max and Leo stood up. Samuel Adler, Sam Adler was in their year. Melanie Kronberger, one of the older girls stood up. It went on like that, a name, a pause while the girl or boy stood up. And then Mr. Schmidt said, Leo Grunberg, Max couldn't help feeling a tiny stab of jealousy. Leo always did better than Max did. What had he won now? Mr. Schmidt put his list back in his pocket and waited for the hall to be silent. Leo. We citizens of Vienna welcome our leader, the Führer, and we are proud to play our part in greater Germany. From this moment on, you will hear a new greeting from me. And he thrust his right arm forward, palm down, arm straight out and shouted, Heil Hitler! No one spoke, not even in a whisper. Mr. Schmidt lowered his arm. We are going to show our enemy their true place, he went on. He pointed at each of us who were standing. You dogs no longer have the same rights as everyone else, he said. From now on, you shall be treated like the lesser race you are. You will sit separately at the back of the room. His gaze moved around the school hall. The rest of you are not to interact with them. Jews are different from us. They are dirty and inferior. No contact. Do I make myself clear? Yes, Mr. Schmidt, the entire school replied, even us Jews standing awkwardly among the rest. Max. Max's thoughts were spinning so hard they made him feel dizzy. What was happening? And why did it feel so familiar? He knew the answer. Mr. Schmidt sounded like his father, ranting and blaming Jews for everything that was wrong with the world. His face warm with shame, Max stared at the floor and shifted his body a tiny bit in the direction of the other children, the children who still belonged. A small part of his brain knew he was letting his best friend down, but the bigger part had a question beating against it. What if I'm next? Leo. The 12 of us sat at the back of the hall for the rest of the day. Everyone ignored us as they had been told to do, even Max. Last lesson was with Mrs. Werner. She stopped me at the door. 
No Jews, she said. The rest of you come in. I watched as my classmates filed past me and Mrs. Werner closed the door behind them. I made my way to the front of school when, Leo, wait. I spun round. It was Max. I'm sorry I turned away from you this morning, he said. I'm sorry I haven't talked to you all day. His eyes filled with tears. I nodded. I couldn't speak. Look, I, I've got to go. Max glanced furtively around. Everything will be okay, he said. I'm sure it will, I replied. As he ran back to the classroom, I wondered if he believed it any more than I did. I made my way home through the park, the canal. I walked around the streets until my legs burned and my hands were so cold I could barely feel them. Shame followed me around every corner, clinging to me like a dark shadow. As I neared Stefan's Platz, I heard a noise up ahead. There was a crowd of people pushing and jostling as they cheered and laughed. As I got closer, I recognised a few of Papa's friends amongst the crowd, in their big coats and their black hats, laughing at something in the middle of the group. I wriggled between the men until I got to the front. I would have given everything I had to change what I saw. I'd have walked out of school in shame a hundred times over to make it not be real. There were three men on the ground, kneeling in muddy puddles, arms out in front of them. It took a second for me to realise that they were scrubbing the pavement. It took another second to see that one of the men was my father. I felt like a cannonball had been hurled at my stomach. I clutched my mouth. I could taste sick in my throat. Harder! A man opposite shouted in a familiar voice. It was Mr Fisher, Max's father. He was wearing a uniform with a white armband on it. The armband had a shape I'd been seeing a lot lately. Swastika. Mr Fisher bent down towards Papa. A bit of spit sprayed from his mouth as he shouted again. I said harder! My father looked up at him with pleading eyes from where he knelt in the puddle. Papa, the man everyone loved, the man who could make anyone smile, who would do anything for anyone. My larger-than-life papa, still in his smart suit and waistcoat, was kneeling in a puddle with a scrubbing brush in his hand. I cannot scrub harder, sir, he said. Mr Fisher took a step forward. Maybe this will help, he said. And then he kicked my father in the stomach so hard that Papa fell forward, his face landing in the puddle. Papa! I yelped as the crowd roared with laughter. From the ground, Papa turned his head in my direction. His white, terrified eyes met mine. His lips moved silently. Go, he mouthed, before kneeling again and resuming his scrubbing. The thought of leaving him horrified me, but the thought of staying terrified me more, so I did what he said. I ran through the square and along the cobbled streets until I could no longer hear the crowds baying and jeering. And then, in the quiet of a deserted street, I leaned against the wall and retched over and over until my throat burned and my stomach cramped. Even so, the pain was nothing compared to the ache in my heart. It's an incredibly hard-hitting part of the story. And... Uh, made all the more horrific by the fact that Mr Fisher, Max's father, is somebody that they've had to eat at their table. These events have been brewing for some time, but it almost feels like an overnight switch the minute that that Anschluss uh, takes place. And it is a a real shock to the system of the the reader. Um, There are lots of themes that the novel explores, one of which is to do with how people change. Um, and how that change happens. Uh, there are a couple of quotes here that are stuck in my mind. One is from Max's story, which it says, the twitchy bit, the bit that is sort of his conscience, the twitchy bit 
got smaller and smaller. And then there was a little bit later from Elsa's story where she's on the train to Auschwitz. And it says, I find myself noticing how easy it is for something absurd to become almost natural, how rapidly something unthinkable can become commonplace, how easily we let the unconceivable become a new normal, how quickly we learn to stop questioning things. It seemed to me that both of these quotes, both both of these perspectives have enormous currency and meaning for us today, as well as historically. Were you aware of that as you were writing? Was was today as important to you as the past in a way? Yes, absolutely. And I think this was another reason why um, it took a long time to kind of form itself in the background because I wanted it to be current for today. And then in the conversations that I had and thinking that I did about it, realised that you don't need to signpost that quite so obviously. You don't need to say, hey, look, we're coming back to the present day and it's still happening now. You know, there are ways of doing that. And, you know, the very last chapter, it's almost an epilogue really at the end. I hope people will feel strongly the sense of this being something, of being offered the opportunity to take responsibility for not allowing events like these to happen um, and for speaking up when they do and anything does. There was something else that uh, perhaps chimes with exactly what you're saying there. Max, some way towards the end of the novel says the truth was he'd chosen this life as much as it had chosen him. And there's your invitation. You do have a choice. It's a difficult one because you're writing about children and you've already said, you know, they're to some extent powerless in their circumstances, but you are offering them the opportunity to keep thinking about that. Yeah. And, you know, this is again a point that I would love to think, I'd love to imagine young people and educators or parents or whoever discussing because it was another thing that took a lot of fine tuning to make sure I was doing this in the way that felt right. Because I needed to present Max as, throughout the book, from the start to the end, as somebody who was in some ways a a product of his circumstances, but he was culpable as well. And I think it was a very difficult balance and very important balance to me to get. I didn't want anything about his family, his background or his desire to fit in or anything to excuse him. I didn't want him to be given that uh, any kind of forgiveness for his decisions. I wanted it to show how this might have happened to an ordinary, innocent, nice young boy. Uh, But also there has to be a sense he has to be culpable as well. So it's um, mm. it a very fine line to tread and took, you know, a lot of thinking to I get right. To say, I do think you did it brilliantly. Thank you. Yeah, I do. I appreciate how difficult that line is. Well, of course, Memorial Day uh, this year is be the light in the darkness. And I really love that sentiment because it is a call to action rather than just a reflection on the past. It's an invitation to be the light in the darkness. And in a sense, I think your book is offering the same invitation. Yeah, I mean, it did have a different title when I wrote it. Um, It was originally called Chasing the Light. And in fact, it was Jay Griffiths, who I worked with initially, who suggested 
this new title because we all sort of felt like it wasn't quite right. But anyway, and when the world was ours was like when she first told me, my eyes filled with tears. I was like, yes, it's perfect. But no, the, so the original idea had been chasing the light. So it's always been for me, it's always been part of the book that it is about finding the light. And there's a lot of references to light. And within the Jewish religion, you know, we we have Yahtzeit, which is where you light a candle when somebody's died, and the eternal light is part of the Jewish religion and, you know, the, the festival of lights with the Hanukkah and, you know, so light is a really big thing. And it's also, you know, yeah, it is be the light in the darkness is the most wonderful theme and the most wonderful idea. And I think at the moment in particular, we're living in unprecedented times and we, we have to be more and more creative about how we actually find that light. And I think for me, I've figured out, or I am in the process of figuring out that it's to do with, finding joy in small moments and you say that woman smiled at me or you know whatever it is that we have to find those moments and those things that yeah that make us happy and I hope that my book will be that you know I kind of think I you know it's a heartbreaking book but I I am glad to hear you say as you did at the start that you know the, the overriding feeling you do have at the end is of hope yeah and friendship I have to ask you I didn't ask you at the beginning because I wanted to reserve it for the end of our interview your father's read the book how has he responded oh he is so happy and he's so proud and he wants to be involved in everything he wanted the first proof he's so proud yeah and he's you know he's very glad that I've done it Liz I'm so glad you got the chance to write it while he's around to have that that feeling of pride um, in you and in the story that you've told And thank you so much for joining me in the Reading Corner today. Nikki, thank you for having me. And it's lovely to talk to you. It's lovely to talk about the book as well. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.